0: Welcome to Cloud Insiders, the podcast that brings cloud down to earth. Okay, today I'm joined by Phil Milroy. Welcome, Phil. Hi. And I'm joined by Craig Whelan, Project Manager at Extrovert. Welcome back, Craig. Holly So, let's get straight back into it. Give us a bit of an introduction, please, Craig, in terms of the sort of work
1: you've done in the past and, and what you're doing now. Certainly. So my background in IT stretches back over 15 years now, I'm starting out in a general day-to-day support, moving through to transformational type activity. In recent years, moving through to, to project management, which where I find myself today, assisting with the delivery of complex hybrid cloud type solutions and involving myself with all aspects of the, the consultancy.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much. And Phil, over to you. Would you like to just give us a quick summary of your, your background and, and what you're doing now?
2: Yes, my background is um, quite similar to Craig's in as much as uh, dealing with infrastructure and, uh, you know, core systems. But I've moved several years ago into more of an automation focus. Um, and at the moment, yeah, currently working on the same kind of platforms, um, hybrid clouds and generally automation of systems.
0: Okay, very good. So perhaps we could start with you then, Phil. What differentiates the client-side in-house view to the consultative approach that you find yourself um, day-to-day now?
2: So for myself, I think the biggest difference is generally the scale of involvement. From an in-house perspective, uh, there's often many silos of skills within an organisation um, and the, the role that you play is generally slightly more restricted, I would say. Um, you don't generally transcend the invisible barriers between the teams Uh, Whereas the consultative approach is more dependent on seeing the overall big picture and trying to understand how that will affect all of the technology towers uh, rather than just the sort of small silo that you're responsible for in a generally in an in-house role.
0: Good, good. And if you were to expand on that slightly, what was a a day in the life within a silo on the in-house side like?
2: I personally tended to find a day in the life fairly staid and I wouldn't say completely monotonous, but with the silos, you tend to become very good at one particular thing, but you don't really get much exposure to everything else, if you like. So from a consultative point of view, it's a much more rewarding prospect of uh, working on different technologies and dealing with all different facets of a project rather than just a small or narrow sliver of, of the overall work.
0: Mm, okay, and and Craig... Do you want to contrast your day in the life and when you were on the in-house side with, with what you find yourself doing now?
1: Yeah, so I think just, just coming off the back of what Phil says is a very distinct separation of the type of tasks with with the in-house kind of work. that You generally get the depth of involvement because you're doing it day in, day out, whereas with the consultative, we're talking about breadth. Your exposure to different technologies and different processes and people mean that you do gather a lot more information Given the opportunity to listen to, to varying aspects of, of a project or a, a delivery team, or you know, a kind of engagement, if you will, so the two coupled together do work quite well in a very distinct way. Um, so the consultative is about breadth um, and exposure to, to a number of things, and it's it can be extremely ad hoc because of that nature you'll get called upon do you know the skills of this or do you know anybody with the skills of that you may not know but you may get them the opportunity to go and find out that skill and understanding a bit better and that's where you're going to grow as an individual technically and personally
0: as well Hmm. okay and just exploring that a bit more so in terms of the consultative approach to it what sort of problems are clients asking you to solve at the moment
1: so I think with, with the consultative side of things, we we can focus a lot more on business objective rather than necessarily the, the technical solution, if you will. We can, we can come up a level and understand what the benefit is to the business overall and, and provide some relevancy to that. So as a business, I want to react quicker and acquire IT services in a more efficient manner. As a consultant, you get then the opportunity to take that down another level, coming back into a more technical focused role and provide a range of solutions that might benefit the customer in that way. And, and then another level down from that is is getting involved in the technical delivery side of things where you would proof of concept those types of solutions or indeed run ahead with, with the, the implementation of a solution to achieve that objective. And it's having that exposure up and down the, the objective uh, stack, if you will, and, and understanding the translation between one and the other, you then start to realise the benefits of what you do as an individual and where you fit in as, as a consultant.
0: Mm, okay. And it, and in terms of how you see yourself and the team benefiting um, client teams, how would you summarise that in a couple of points?
1: I think with, with the background in consulting uh, and in consultative team, as you say, you're not just reliant as a customer on one individual's experience, and this this really does show to go to show the the benefit of engaging with a consultancy practice, if you will, over say a contract engineer or resource or or kind of architect. In that your consultant in front of you is the doorway to a number of consultants, so the breadth is then amplified, if you will, and that you know really does hold a lot of weight with certainly the enterprise type customers where we are going to see things that we don't often see that maybe even vendors with their own software or hardware platforms, they don't see until we present the issue. If there is such an issue or a new way of looking at the tool set in order to provide a different type of benefit that maybe somebody hasn't seen or thought of before team, if you will, of being in a consultancy, is it really does start to pay off when when you're talking about two, three, four individuals and expanding that out to maybe 40 individuals of knowledge and experience that you can tap into at at the click of a button, given today's instant availability of communication. Do you want to give us an example? Certainly. So I think we're all very much aware now of the kind of instant messaging. You know, we all use Skype or we might be using Slack for team collaboration tooling like this allows us to not only interact internally and you know provide a quick Q and a question with a colleague that may not even be on the same site as us they so may may be on a different engagement entirely, we can bridge that communication gap very quickly, very easily to explore other avenues of knowledge. But if we're using those tools in conjunction with the customer, be it a partner or indeed an end customer. We can pass that information around so much quicker we can form isolated teams for discussion and have you know micro workshops at at the speed of light if you will to resolve an issue that may be present present or indeed going to present itself in the near future. you overcome challenges before they actually become a problem and that's sort of speed of reaction really again does go to show the the kind of caliber of consulting that we we can offer uh, as an organization and that the individuals within the team relish the use of because it allows them to be much more productive and gain value from their day-to-day involvement uh, on a
0: delivery Mm -hmm. and i suspect also learn very quickly as a as a group
1: absolutely the cross pollination of skills is quite dramatic we might see somebody like phil who's got a very good background in infrastructure who's taking up the reins of uh, the automation orchestration space in scripting and the languages involved, be able to provide somebody with the very core basics to get them started on that journey themselves and see them accelerate in a matter of days and weeks to be confident and capable in providing skill uh, and knowledge to a customer, whereas you know weeks previous there just wasn't a possibility. So these kind of tool sets and this kind of interaction as a team yeah, you know, really does help us, certainly as individuals, and certainly our customers. Mm. So maybe
0: if I throw that to you now, Phil, do you want to just reflect back on the on the in house experience? What were the main pain points that you saw within your silo, and and then secondly, what was driving change?
2: Yeah, so I think the main pain points um, that I experienced were generally revolving around cost cutting exercises, which which seemed to compromise what I believe would have led to more successful projects. There didn't seem to be always a balance between kind of getting a car blanche and providing enough resources to give the project a proper chance. sometimes that, that felt like you were being asked to build a you know a spaceship out of some old cardboard tubes. It wasn't particularly fair, but you tried to make do with what you had. Regarding what drove the what drove change. That that was many and varied, if I'm honest. Sometimes it might have been a new product released and uh, the subsequent need to update underlying systems to accommodate that change. But sometimes it was just who shouted loudest, and sometimes the drive was purely financial. So rather than look at an overall view of the entire business, um, it was driven more by looking at which department generated the highest revenue and you know, prioritising changes based on that.
0: Okay, thank you. Craig, if you were to step back into an in-house role, knowing what you know now, what would you change in your approach?
1: Two things come to mind. One is the ability to listen and stay very static for quite a while when discussing project requirements or project objectives. Uh, And this, I think, comes from my move into more of a project-focused role rather than being kind of infrastructure delivery. The second one would be to use tactics such as kind of, you know, the five whys in trying to understand the very essence of a change or a kind of undertaking for the business and provide myself some relevance and context as to what the benefit is in order that when I do undertake any activity, there's some credibility behind it rather than just doing it because I'm asked. When you find context and relevance, you're very much more infused, I find, to carry out the tasks. And it makes it a lot easier then to challenge those requests as well in a more informed manner.
0: Um, do you want to just... Run us through the five whys in that context.
1: Yes, certainly. So I think um, it it is as simple as just asking why five times. I'm not entirely sure where I picked this up from. It's it's probably from watching too many YouTube videos or self-help books or that kind of thing. But effectively, if if you're going to be directed to do something, ask yourself or ask the, the person why are they doing that. And they'll give you a reason, and, and that might not be the, the core essence of it. And and if you ask why and apparently five is, is a good number, you get down to the very nub of, of the reason as to why this might actually be taking place and what the core drivers are to them as an individual and as an organization or a team that maybe manage a function or a business. And that then provides everybody an opportunity to not only – learn a bit about, you know, the the, the high level objective that's being uh, used to drive the project, but also then understand the decisions that get to that as well, because that detail might actually be relevant to somebody else. And if you can document that, publish it and let, you know, all stakeholders see that that is effectively your project mandate and the reasoning, everybody can learn and everybody can gain from that during the project delivery. So that's that's, uh, a technique that is, I think, underused, but definitely adds a lot of value in in a project. And there's no reason why you couldn't use that throughout a project either. Uh, It doesn't necessarily need to be at the start or at the end or anything like that. It could be something you could use to some degree throughout. And I think it's exploring additional information, basically.
0: Okay. So exploring that a bit further, in terms of the common mistakes, That you've seen or the gotchas from companies working with and implementing new technologies and change in organizations what are the common mistakes that you've seen organizations make
1: i think we may have discussed this somewhat on on another episode actually And, and one of my favorite things is this communication pathway and the understanding of why you're doing something and how you're going to do it and what the effect is to those implementing and those being affected by change that you know traditionally or you know commonly is one of the bigger pain points that we we see and people like to feel informed whether they necessarily need to know is up for debate but I think if you have an opportunity to give somebody information and have them either acknowledge that that exists and these are the reasons you're doing something they don't necessarily have the mandate or remit to challenge that but at least they've been informed and you know this comes back to uh, sort of some project management type methodologies where you might use a RACI matrix for example and you have all it all of your stakeholders in in there and everybody can be informed you may not consult that person for example you may not want or require the feedback at this point but at least they've been advised as to what something's going to happen So, communication i think is is one of the bigger challenges wrestling with i.t and I think to possibly lead into another question or another avenue of discussion is a business is clearly keen to innovate and IT need to catch up with that. And it's and it's always a kind of cat and mouse affair by who is leading who and what innovation is driving actual business benefit. Or are we just doing this because vendor A said that we should upgrade this year because it's going out of support. That in itself has possibly got another episode associated with it. But there's too many possibilities there that a vendor says it's end of life and therefore you must upgrade. But we've been to many customers where they haven't necessarily taken the line with a vendor and upgraded their systems because what they've got works for them today and they know it's going to work for them tomorrow and they've safeguarded it and offset the risk accordingly that they don't need to change. So the, the challenge there is just to know when to say, you know what, what we've got is fine and actually we don't necessarily need to innovate day but let's just you know park it and we'll move on uh so you know the challenge there is the balance in, in and trade-off between constant change and, and knowing when actually good enough is good enough
0: mm. and and something that i'm picking up there is from listening to both of you is that what's potentially missing from the scenario that you've described in the past phil is that communication between those on the tools and those in management about things that are changing what might be needed and and what might be the best path. So what advice would you give to somebody in a silo, say working on infrastructure, who's thinking about a need for change?
2: I would say one of the best things to do would be to clearly define what requirements you have. As as Craig's already mentioned, a lot of people effectively are just jumping on the bandwagon because either the vendors said it's a good thing to do or support is running out but I think it's important to clarify what actual benefits it will provide to the business to make a transition for example you know, to get a hybrid cloud in or any new piece of software or updated software you know, don't just get something because it's shiny and new but think about what it's going to give back to the business how long it's going to take in order to give it back and overall is it worth doing um, and if you think it is, then to clearly define exactly what you want to get from that particular software or solution, whatever it happens to be. I reference the question that you asked Craig a second ago regarding common mistakes. And I guess for me, the main one that I see is that requirements are not properly defined. And it, it leads to a problematic approach to solution delivery uh, because you then have to try to Almost backfill what their requirements are based on some rather vague requirements, you know, some vague higher-level requirements.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a really good point because, of course, the IT in me would say, "But I don't have any time, Phil." That's part of the problem is that because I'm short on time, how do I approach these requirements?
2: Yep, and I'd I'd say that's a, you know that's a very valid point. But at the same time, if you don't know what you're trying to do, it's going to be very hard. Even for, you know, a consultancy firm to come in and say, yes, we can do that. Because how can you say, yes, we can do that if you don't know what it is that is required to be, you know, what's needed to be done? I think it's something that needs to be thrashed out as much as possible at the start of a project.
0: Understood. And Craig, do you have any tips for folks who know that change is needed and they know they need to thrash this out, so to speak, but have very limited time?
1: Yeah, I think I do actually. And whilst you guys were just discussing that then I I was kind of screaming in my head, again, boiling this down to very simplistic questioning. What does success look like for you? If you can answer that question, then you go some way to understanding what it is you want to achieve. And I guess that's the translator question between the business objective and the technical success of a project. Once you define what good looks like, you can then understand what the test might look like to qualify that question. Once you understand what good looks like, you can understand how you get there. You've got a measure of the path, if you will, that you need to follow. You then bring in your subject matter experts, your technical expertise, the guys with the knowledge and the wisdom and the the capability to deliver this project and say, like, this is your start point. Here's your objectives. We know what good looks like because that's your end point help me fill in the gap in the middle and there may be bits we don't know right now and that's fine we'll cover that when we get there but understanding that that is is the overall project scope if you will helps somebody like Phil in order to deliver his project it helps somebody like your project sponsor know that he's got what he asked for in the first place and it also helps your end user the person who's going to ultimately utilize the system gain the benefit that the business is looking to deliver to them
0: do you want to give us a recent example in terms of a client that was was in the situation of needing to to change or bring in change, how you went about it and what the outcome was.
1: Yeah, certainly. So I think uh, just just picking up the earlier thread there around not needing to maybe innovate because of external factors, but actually identifying what a business objective might be. We've had recent exposure with a, a long-standing customer who is looking to provide high availability and resiliency to a middleware platform that they they currently utilize that isn't necessarily configured in a manner that they wish to to kind of benefit from in the in the business they have identified themselves looking at the the kind of vendor specifications for the latest software that in upgrading to an interim version or a later version of of the product they can provide that that benefit so they've they've got a view that from the business, they can get high availability and resiliency to their middleware platform. Technically, they know that implementing this IT solution, this piece of software, uh, this new hypervisor, if you will, uh, to get into the the technical detail, gives that middleware platform uh, a capability that it's not natively able to, to provide. Additionally, the aside benefits they can then sell that as additional and overhead into the project and then back into the business that you know upgrading this hypervisor gives us not only this and this is our key driver but these benefits as well and they might actually override that that initial benefit but until you know that, that's that been explored you've got a very clear objective that the business is going to benefit on what that objective is and somebody like phil can go in and deliver the project confident in the knowledge that he knows what good looks like because He's already spoken to the middleware team and said, how are you going to test that this high availability now works? All of a sudden, you've got the scope and boundaries of a very well-defined project. It's yet to be delivered, but at least we're on the right footing from the outset. Phil's got his requirements, customer's got his objectives, and the project management team generally know what good looks like.
0: Thank you. So how much time was spent on that scoping requirements piece and how large was the project?
1: Sure. So this actually, um, in the grand scheme of things, is a a relatively small project. I would say that those types of discussions um, may have taken place over, say, a month, but may have just been a series of one or two hour phone calls. And that's just the usual kind of, we've got this idea that we want to explore. We've read this. Do you know that this is what it does? We've got a way and, and, you know, looked at the capability proven that it works in maybe a, a proof of concept environment aside from the customer requirements that benefits them because we can we can tell them that yes it definitely does what it needs to do benefits us because we then have more intricate exposure to that element of the technology and one of the things in a consultancy is you don't always get to play with all of the tricks and tools in the in the toolbox you get to implement piece of software and the customer wants it to do a and b but you never get to see c so in this case we get to see c uh and prove that so at that point those kind of those few weeks have passed uh, and then we can start to talk around the commercials for engagement and how that might look and given the scale and the size of this particular customer it may only be three or four weeks it may actually be only a week depends how much of this middleware environment they look to provide higher resiliency to. They've got a highly complex environment, it's isolated in certain parts. They may only choose to go ahead with one. We work quite closely with this particular customer and they may want us to provide the first um, iteration of this upgrade. They may want us to handhold with them for the second and then leave them with the requisite processes and procedures that have been bedded in for them to then subsequently deliver themselves. At which, you know, if they've got any problems they will clearly come back to us and, and ask for further advice or consultancy. But that's generally the way that we work with this particular customer. And it's not unheard of that we work with that with a number of customers. A bigger customer, it might well be a much more involved process. We might spend a number of days on site with them, workshopping explicitly what that business objective looks like, mapping that back through the questioning process, providing them, you know, feedback of what good looks like as far as we see it, and then stepping through that procedure to build up a rough order of magnitude for a project plan, uh, some sort of idea that might match something they've already come up with, certainly a discussion where there's maybe a discrepancy, uh, and then we'll look to scope out the the, the project as best we can with the knowledge we've got at this point. And where there are gaps, we identify them and advise that we can only provide information in those gaps at certain junctures within the project on the nature of it, and 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 I say that having kind of been involved in maybe uh, a few hybrid cloud environments now, where there's a distinct change between infrastructure delivery and the more customised elements that you see in uh, automation and orchestration space, and and that would be the same for end user compute to a degree as well, where there is a, a variance factor for gold images and implementation of software. Those elements are unquantifiable, possibly at this stage dependent on customer requirements that may not be available until further down the line.
0: So you've touched on hybrid cloud there and some of the, the EUC or end user compute side. If we think about the future now, what sort of trends do you see affecting IT organizations and affecting folks who are in-house?
1: With the current trend, and I use that phrase very carefully, uh, the current trend to automation uh, and orchestration, what we're <clears throat> starting to see now is the distinct realisation of a dream for, for quite a number of years that we can have self-service within organisations, that so we don't have to go through elongated change management processes or IT service management procedures to get consumption of systems. With that in mind, I think the key driver is allowing the user the control to request services. They're already pre-built, they're already predefined and structured. And the adoption of them is reduction of risk within the business when you do produce a new system. So you know, a function or a DevOps function, for example, may need to spin up a number of virtual machines or a combination of virtual machines to do some development work or some testing, or even put into production a solution that they provided for a part of the business to drive innovation on the on the business end of things. Being able to do that in their own time, um, at their own request, without the involvement of IT infrastructure, I think is the biggest trend that we're seeing. And we've seen it bubbling away now for a uh, kind of good four or five years. It's really starting to come into its own. We see massive adoption within the enterprise globally. So we're now starting to see the realization of that dream, um, where previously we were talking about very manual Driven processes and a lot of intervention from people. Uh, that's now self service and is very much a, a real prospect for, for those within IT and those users um, of IT systems.
0: Right, thank you. And for those who know a lot about automation, such as yourself, Phil, what does that mean and where is that leading ops teams into the future?
2: Uh, I think it will lead to hopefully more consistent products um, because. What you're effectively giving people is a consistent build every time, uh, which which may sound like a very simple thing, um, but in actual fact, if you have to build five servers, even if you did them all yourself, you can be almost certain that there would be some subtle differences, and they may actually be insignificant at the time, or they may not. It might you know they might be the one critical thing that you didn't change that setting, and that caused the code to to fail. So I think. Giving people a really good solid foundation on which to drive their ideas from is is <clears throat> going to massively accelerate the way new technologies are are driven out. Uh, so I think it's going to allow people greater freedom to to drive the ideas that probably previously they they may have thought of, but didn't have any real collateral to you know to get behind an idea and say, well, that needs twenty servers or you know ten, fifteen servers. And people would just laugh at you. You know, they'd say, "Yeah, okay, so go and buy ten or twenty servers." Um, and obviously, the project will never get off the ground. Um, whereas, I think with the the self-service, people can get something consistent, solid. Um, it will be it, it will conform to corporate standards um, in terms of you know, for example, things like it will have the correct AV agent on there. It will be backed up in a you know, according to the corporate policy. I, I think it just Gives people a real head start, if you like, to to really get their ideas off the ground. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what ideas people come up with when they're able to request you know, services in a very simple fashion. As Craig said, it's giving the users the power as opposed to where previously it's always rested with the IT service to provide these things. Um, it's now shifting so the user has more power. And I think that's a good thing. And it's going to be interesting to see what the end result is.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Craig, anything to add in terms of tools that you think would be helpful for folks to start to think about?
1: I think if we if we take a more vendor agnostic approach, we might look at the term software defined. And that's a, a theme throughout everything we're talking about today and, and certainly is going to make a, a big impact uh, in the future. Software defined storage, software defined networking. Um, we've already got software defined data center to a degree, and we've now got this this nice term for it um and effectively is a, a boiled down, you know, the real true meaning of, of what cloud is, uh if we take away the, the consumption side, the end user serviceable side of it, is that it's software defined and actually those tool sets, if you if you go to the various vendors, like so as you say, Citrix and VMware and look at what they're providing in the software defined space, that's where we would certainly see a lot of effort being spent. Um Complementary tools to that, we see a lot of service now for an IT service management perspective and we see a lot of discussion in DevOps space around Puppet and Blue Medora and OpenStack and these kind of uh, tool sets along with the likes of Jenkins and Ansible where continuous integration, continuous service delivery, continuous software development. Those sorts of practices are really going to sort of you know, ruffle a few feathers and, and make people really think about how they utilise IT and this this you know mythical cloud solution that's available to them, whether they're using a public cloud like Amazon Web Services or VCloud Air, or indeed using their own internal cloud services through VMware vRealize Suite capable or VCloud Suite capable um, solutions. So. I've dropped in a few names there, but that's certainly the kind of trends that we're seeing at the moment. And uh, there's there's a, there's a lot of effort going into those tool sets to provide maturity at a, at a relatively rapid pace. None that I've I've certainly witnessed myself over the last sort of 15 years. You know, you see operating systems and uh, solutions, deployment solutions and configuration management solutions. They take years to develop and embed in. In the industry, but um, this new wave of, of DevOps and the associated tools, they've, they've been around a matter of months and, and maybe a couple of years at best, and yet they really are starting to um, make big shockwaves through the industry. So it's good to see, it's good innovation.
0: Very good. And, and wrapping up, gentlemen, perhaps I'll throw it to you, Craig. Um, when looking at some change that's coming or needs to, to happen, what advice would you give to in-house teams on how to work best with consultancies?
1: I think some clarity before you engage, just, just have a, a quick think, you know, why, why are you doing this? Let's understand what those business objectives might be. If if a customer can go some way to sort of uh, guiding in that direction and allow the the consultancy to bridge the gap between the business objective and the technical solution, you'll find that the solutions are offered without the product names, without the... Uh, the vendor spin on them uh, and actually what you find is you get a better fit for what we're trying to deliver. Uh, We pride ourselves of being vendor agnostic and we'll choose the best tool or the best solution that's relevant to you as a business but we can only do that once we really understand what that business objective is. So I think stop, step back a bit, review that objective, provide some clarity, some distinct elements around it in order that we can define what good looks like, as I mentioned, and we can proceed from there with a very much more confident approach to the project.
0: Brilliant. Thank you both for your time and talk to you next time. Thanks, Thanks, Ollie. Thank you, Bill. Cheers, Craig. That brings us to the end of another episode of Cloud Insiders. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. And to find out more and access show notes and downloads, head over to cloudinsiders.com. Dot fm you can track us on twitter at cloud insiders and we'd love you to leave us a review on itunes see you next time